Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the New York Times podcast, your rebuild cut of music, news, and criticism. I'm your host, John Caramonica. That sounds sort of familiar, right? Like familiar, maybe not exactly familiar. You kind of know what it is. You're not exactly sure what it is. It's Frank Ocean, White Ferrari, Ryan's version, informally titled. That is the version of White Ferrari that Frank Ocean played at Coachella six weeks ago. Feels like nine lifetimes ago. Fans caught it on their cameras, on videos, on their live streams. People were very excited that he performed that song in different version. Part of the resonance with Frank and Coachella, as he said on stage, was that he used to go with his younger brother. His younger brother has since passed away. So people thought it was very moving and meaningful that he chose to perform this version of that song. It is the mailbag episode of Popcast. The first question is about Frank Goshen. So we're going to get to that in a second. But first, let's say who's here. John Perales is here. Hi there. Lindsay Zolads is here. I'm here. Joe Coscarelli is here. Happy early summer, guys. Yes, that's true. Karen will be here. We're going to get her. She's going to show up at some point. Her ankle hurts. Yes, real talk. Sore ankle. Her vocal cords are strained. It's a a big summer for uh, physical ailments in the touring ecosystem. As you probably know, Frank played the first weekend of Coachella and then pled lame ankle for not showing up to the second weekend of Coachella. People had very mixed feelings about the set. I am of the mindset that that is a Frank Ocean live performance and that that's what you are signing up for. That is the thing. Um, But let's start with the first question, which comes from David Cohen. Would love to unpack Frank Ocean's Coachella set a little bit. Obviously, it was, to put it charitably, a bit messy, but wasn't an outright failure or the blend of chaos with fleeting moments of beauty we should come to expect from Frank. Will this moment be harmful for his career And furthermore, does Frank need to be considered a viable live performer in order to continue being part of the larger pop conversation as we move further away from the 2010s? Been thinking about this, especially recently following the great J. Paul podcast. So I'd be curious to hear everybody's thoughts on the Frank Ocean set. There is also floating around the Internet something called the Rebuild Cut by a video editor named Brian Kinnis, which basically recreates the set in full, sort of. Apparently, he's left some of the banter out and some of the awkward silences. If I'm being honest, journalistically, I would like to see the full set preserved with the awkward silences, with the awkward banter. I would like to see everything together because I think as a document, it's important to capture the thing in full. It seems like what was put out and is floating around on the Internet archive, what is floating around uh, is essentially a streamlined version of the Frank Ocean set called from dozens of fan-taken videos. Shout out to Beastie Boys also on that. It's a film. It's a found footage film. So I don't think it has to be journalism. I think he he made it as an editor and a director. Oh, I, I don't think it has to. I'm just saying personally, 
given that the narrative around this set was like, damn, it was mad awkward. Damn, he didn't talk for two minutes. When we look back at like, like assuming that this film survives in some form or fashion, it is essentially a streamlined version. It won't quite line up with like the news accounts of the day. So that's that's my only complaint, really. I'm glad it exists otherwise. So I'm curious to hear what y'all thought about the Frank set to the extent that you could or were able to watch it. But I do think this second part of the question is fascinating, which is like if Frank just says, I'm never doing a show again, never doing it. I'm going to put out an album every three years. I'll make a movie. I've got jewelry. I've got all this other stuff. Can he still be an A-list pop star to the extent that he is right now? JP, where were you? Did you watch any of the Frank Ocean set? Like, where, did you see it? Like, what's your thought on this? People always remember the mistakes in the set. People do not remember as much the perfectly choreographed, I've done this in 50 cities moment of the set. They remember the moment when they forgot the words, you know, when they bumped into one of the dancers. I think the chaos of the set actually was a memory hook in a way. I don't know if I'd want to be standing in the desert waiting through two minutes of silence, but it made a lot of people interested. In a way, how the attention economy functions these days is having kind of like a glitchy, imperfect, like fan vexing set at a live show like this somehow better than just like a perfect set. Like are we, we're talking about the Frank Ocean set now, six weeks later. I'm not saying that I haven't seen the Beyonce tour, but I'm sure the Beyonce tour is like pretty dialed in. I bet Beyonce is doing Beyonce. It's great. Are people talking about the specifics of the Beyonce set right now? In that I was going to say, a Beyonce caught a little bit of heat early on in those first couple dates. Because of the dancing thing? Yeah. So that's a, you know, Beyonce is having her own version of this. And I think we'll have to see if kinks are worked out by the time she gets to North America. But maybe we'll tackle that on the next mailbag. But we're also still kind of talking about Beyonce at Coachella, like however many years ago that was too. Right. And there were the no gl- there it. were no glitches. No, for for its sheer perfection of performance and zero I, glitches. I agree with what JP was saying, but I think at the same time, this felt like the first time, at least in Frank Ocean's fandom, that like the onus was on the fans a little bit. And that was maybe what made it seem a little more unsettling, like these fans that had waited seven, eight years to see him live and came to Coachella and were left wanting a little bit. I I think, John, too, like when you brought up, you know, does he just put out a record every three years? He hasn't. <laughs> like <laughs> the time between, you know, I'm like, I'm like quibble, eight years quibble. This lucky. is a quibble, minor quibble. <laughs> but I think that, and look, I love Frank, like Blonde is still like one of the top albums of the last decade for me. But I think he's been given a lot of benefit of the doubt, like in the wake of Blonde in particular. And that's a really long time. And I think this was the first moment where I saw that crumbling a little bit. I hear what you're saying, Lindsay, but but here's my thing. I think there are now endless ways to be a pop star. And I think the model that we are still talking about especially in relation to whether Frank is enjoying being on stage or not enjoying being on stage, yada, yada, yada. Like, that's, it's an 80s model. It's a 90s model. And I'm not saying necessarily even that he is waking up one morning and being like, I am, I'm coming here with a sledgehammer and I'm breaking the mold and I'm, I'm doing, I just simply think like the nature of Frank Ocean fandom is more abstract 
on an average day than it is for any other pop star. And so if if to the to the second part of this question, like, does he need to be a viable live performer or even a live performer at all to be a pop star at this level? I actually don't know. I, I think if he puts out an album and people love that album, people are fans of the mythology. You know how many people can be fans of mythology? Millions and millions and millions. You know how many people fit in a stadium? 50,000. You know how many people fit in an arena? 15,000. But millions of people can be fans of your mythology. I don't know about this. The friend, I mean, you guys are being very ginger about this. John, you led this conversation by talking about the grief aspect, which I think tilts it in one direction. If Frank Ocean had a hard time playing Coachella because of the death of his brother, like obviously, you know, all peace to him. Yeah. That said, none of this exists in a vacuum. And Frank Ocean is distinctly, but at this point, fixated on undermining his own celebrity and frustrating and disappointing his fans. As Lindsay said, this is the first time it sort of spilled into the mainstream, but the Frank Ocean Reddit has a meltdown every other week. He stiffed (laughs) them on vinyl. He stiffed them on merch. He stiffed them on music. You know, the parties were a big flop. Like if Frank Ocean wants to be a cult artist that puts out an album every 10 years and then gets treated like a genius, fine. I won't be waiting for it. Some people can, fine. But then don't sign up to headline Coachella. This is the same thing to me with the Rihanna Super Bowl performance. It's like the uh, the argument that she's somehow like subverting the Super Bowl by not trying that hard to me is just total bullshit. Like you're, this is this is uh, this is optional. You, this is they chose to do this. If you're gonna go to Coachella, perform and look. Like to be clear, none of us were there. Maybe it was amazing. I couldn't get through the recut. I thought it was a very cool found footage project. I watched the stuff the morning after as much as I could. I tried to watch the whole thing. It's not a good live show. If he doesn't want to play live, don't play live, but then don't sign up to play Coachella. I've had enough of this uh, treating Frank Ocean with kid gloves. I'm going to split the difference here because I think what you're saying about Rihanna is true. Like, Like the narrative, the kind of like, go ahead, give us nothing energy at the Super Bowl. Philosophically, I think that that, doesn't make loads of sense. But but I think what Rihanna did correctly there was basically say that, you know what this is? This is a marketing opportunity. This is a marketing opportunity for me, the Rihanna brand and Fenty brand and so on and so forth. That's what I'm using. It's it, it's to me that that discourse was less about like she was performing at like a five or a seven or a nine or whatever. And more about what did she show up to do? She showed up to deliver a commercial for Rihanna, but that commercial was not the most like technically engaged and complicated performance she soft launched a pregnancy that, that is there is that that is that is a technically engaged and complicated performance for the yeah. record but as far as frank goes like you go to a place like coachella and there's a certain set of expectations i understand the other headliners are bad bunny it's black paint but it's like if you thought that he was going to show up and do the black pink set or the bad bunny set like you were wrong not you joe but like you as a fan, yeah, I mean, like whatever the wrong. ice skate, you're the ice always skating. wrong. He tried. He was trying. He didn't pull but it Even off. if there had he been ice trying. skaters on stage, Frank still would have been Frank. I agree. And maybe Frank shouldn't be headlining Coachella. I, 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 I just I, I think if you want to see Frank at Coachella with the ice skaters and or without the ice skaters or just watch him like wander around on stage, you should know what you're signing up for. And then that's what he's going to do. And I think there's probably millions of people for whom that's that suffices. I, I, I'm not saying I or you or anyone in this call is one of them. I'm simply saying Frank did Frank and people acted like he did not do that. 
previously. He's always been like that. Yeah, I mean, like, look at the Grammy performance of Forrest Gump. Yeah, like it's the, bad. That's like, <laughs> it's bad. That was, that was also a kind of turning point in the narrative, I think, too, of, you know, way back when, of just, I've never had the expectation that Frank Ocean is a good live performer. I've never seen him live personally. I've watched enough videos to know, again, like, I did not have that expectation of this performance. Wait, who's want, seen Frank live? Just quick. I quick, have. I Governor have. Spall with his headphones on standing there <laughs> doing yes. the minimal amount of anything. And you are now also like PTSD, Lindsay, you're just PTSDing me slightly because I, I reviewed the first Frank Ocean live show in New York. And the one thing I'm now remembering about the first Frank Ocean live show in New York is it was postponed. <laughs> oh yeah it was supposed to happen on I one remember night that now too. Yeah. yeah did not happen that i remember i was at dinner nearby found out in real time like the he walland and basically like whatever whatever the notes app of 2013 was or whatever that was it, and then the show was just like nope no show and then it was the next night or tonight two nights later whatever it was so there's all you know the reluctance like, goes yeah. back to the you, don't, you just like at, at a certain point you don't have the body of work for the shenanigans. Like I agree. we're I doing wanna, all this for 1.5 good albums. Like what are we like I'm what are we talking of, about? I'm here? torn between <laughs> your guys point. Like I, I'm siding with Joe a little bit, but I want to go back to the second part of the question, which was very good of can he be this sort of era defining pop star without being good a good live performer? And I think it's a great question. And I think the answer is still yes. And I go back even farther than you were talking, John. Like I think about like Brian Wilson saying, I'm not going to play live anymore because I'm going to go in the studio and make pet sounds or, you know, the Beatles going to make Let It Be as we all saw it and get back. Like there's precedent for that. But the difference is the productivity. Like those artists are going into the studio to work and put those records out in pretty short order. And I, you know, I don't want to pressure Frank to like have this follow up before he's ready. I also respect like the time he's taking. But I, I agree more with Joe. Like, I think you can't really have it both ways. And I think he is sort of this defining pop star of, you know, the Internet era, the Tumblr era, the, the SoundCloud era in a way. But it's happening simultaneously of, of like the rise of like festival culture, which feels like overlaid on top of what he's doing. And particularly the the live stream culture of Coachella now that that Coachella has, I think, become, you know, for better or worse, beyond just the event that's happening in California, it's a live stream. And and think about the disappointment when it was revealed that Frank's performance or Jay Paul's for that matter, wasn't going to be live streamed. There is this expectation now that Coachella has become this weird like global internet event. And again, I don't really know how I feel about that. I don't love watching live stream concerts and I don't think it's the same thing. But I think in a strange way, like that has has caught up with where he's at. And it's a little bit harder. You know, it's it's in some ways so synergistic that he and Jay Paul were playing the same Coachella and to, you know, slightly different effects, but I, I think somewhat similar results. JP, can I tap you in on the bigger question in this moment? Can Frank Ocean be an A-list pop star if all he does is one sort of botched, fumbled live event every three to five years. I don't know how he supports himself, actually. Well, that's, you know, if anybody knows who Frank Ocean's investment advisor is, <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to it's know who that person is. Yeah, that's true. Or could someone dot, like, dot, yeah, dot. If, if anybody would like to guarantee me a 12 percent annual return on my on my investments, I'd love to love to meet that person. <laughs> 
But I think he's a cult star. I think Joe's right. I don't think he's a, you know, world-beating top 10 heard on the radio. I think he's someone who demands an investment of loyalty. And I think the people who stood all day in the desert to see him are probably pretty peeved. And that loyalty is very strained. And the stair, like it goes back to the staircase. Like if you want to be the guy who's building the staircase for four or five days, however long that went on, <laughs> then build the staircase. I, I find okay. more power okay. to you, but you don't, you don't get to back. be, you don't get to be both unless I'm just like, you know, show if you get, if you, if you show up, you know, people like show up. We're going to move on from Frank Ocean. I just very simply want to say that we may be in a cultural and technological moment where millions of people will want to watch you build the staircase and potentially watch you fail to build the staircase and still be your fan. That is a peculiar thing that I do not think would have happened 20 or even 10 years ago. It is, it's particular to the cultural moment. I don't think that Frank Ocean's fame is in danger based on what happened because of that. But that's it. No more Frank. Let's play Dawns by Zach Bryan featuring Maggie Rogers. And by the time he awakes, I'll be halfway. This is from Gabriel Spadaccini, a longtime podcast listener who sent two questions. The first question, Gabe, just want you to know that was like so detailed and good that I almost it's we have to like table it for a later thing. But we'll get to it at some point. Here's the second question. And it's a little bit barbed to us. What the fuck is up with your obsession with genre? No one. (laughs) (laughs) No. No one under the age of 25 is wondering what genre an artist falls into. No one is digging through the crates anymore. What does it matter what genre everyone from Lil Yachty to Zach Bryan is? I'm genuinely curious. What is your fixation with that? Can I recommend a book? <laughs> that book is like, yes, you can. But also that book is all of a sudden complete. I'm not convinced this is wrong. But yes, you can read Kay's book. Yeah, I mean, Califasana's book, Major Labels, is about genre and why he thinks it is necessary. And I think he makes a very good argument. But that book is all about what happened back then. Now, JP, there's a question. Can we do our jobs? Can you do your job that you have done for decades <laughs> without referring to genre? Like, like, can we take the Spadaccini challenge and do it without referring to genre? Or is there something about the way that it communicates ideas in writing that is helpful? I think it's good shorthand. I mean, we have a limited word count. We can't describe <laughs> everything from scratch. It helps to know that Zach came out of country, even if the country he's doing is not George Jones honky tonk. It's a rung on the ladder of the criticism. It just helps you get a vague idea of what it sounds like. I mean, if you have to describe This is guitar-based music with three chords talking about beer and trucks. Why don't you just call it country? (laughs) Okay, so it's a word count thing. That's one thing. It's a word count thing. Lindsay, to what degree is it philosophical? Because I think the subtext of this is like, what we're also doing when we're tagging someone with a genre is we're basically tagging them with all the baggage that is historically associated with that genre, positive and negative, which potentially intentionally. But is that material to your ability to do your job? 
I first of all want to push back on the notion that no one's digging through the crates anymore. Uh, please subscribe <laughs> to The Amplifier, my newsletter, where I have a feature called My Record Hole. <laughs> You'll see that I often and specifically flipping through the country music section at used record stores. But. Can I just say fairly, all all fair play, I but counterpoint, I do not go to record stores. I, you know, like, I don't want some like kid to be like, oh, I care, I want to go. So you can go to a record store. You don't have to go to, like, go to record stores. It's oh, wait, fine. Didn't I just, you get it? Didn't you get in trouble for saying, what was it? That albums shouldn't exist? What, what, what was the last time you did something like this? Yeah. <laughs> that like al- the album is not a important or crucial delivery <laughs> format. Uh, so shout out to everybody on the internet who tried to rinse me the week after my mom died about that. So, you know, like, I hope Jesus. everybody, I hope everybody <laughs> felt great about that. <laughs> Lindsay dicks the crates. I do not really dig through the crates unless I'm absolutely forced to or have to each his a, own. a great crate that I know is going to going to going to yield something. But the genre thing, like how philosophically important is it to you, Lindsay? I think genre is important in terms a of history, the trend towards a historical fandom and and appreciation beyond just music, but in, you know, film Twitter and whatever other medium we want to talk about, it's still as important as ever to know your history, to know the ways in which your favorite contemporary artists are riffing on that, are subverting it, are doing something different and why it's like appealing in that particular moment. So I'm always still learning about that, I think. And it's really exciting and interesting to learn about. And so I think genre is most interesting, like I said, in the ways in which it's subverted, like not the ways that it is stuck to and considered this like immovable formula. It's about knowing the rules so you know how to break them in an interesting way. I think that's interesting, not just for critics, but for listeners too. Like I don't see genre as like this unbreakable set of rules or this, you know, you have to tick all these boxes and you can only be in this one type of genre. I just think of it as a really interesting way to contextualize music and and the sort of hybridity of music right now. Like even so thinking about like Ice Spice jumping on a Taylor Swift remix, you know. We the, did that. The, yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> we like did that's that. we the did reason it. We that did that's it, guys. the reason it's interesting and the reason that it brings up all of the things it does is essentially a reason of genre and of subversion of genre and of the way Taylor Swift's relationship to genre has evolved the way Ice Spice's relationship to genre and the mainstream is evolving in real time in front of us. Like, I just, I think it's something you can't divorce from any type of art form, but music specifically. The history thing is so right. Yeah, it's a, it's like, it's context. Like what we do, mm-hmm. we are not trying to put people in boxes. We are pro the destruction, I think, of genre dogma. We love that. Yeah. Uh, but it still helps to be able to to build a lineage because all pop music is commenting on what came before it, whether it's on purpose or not. I think it's been an interesting conversation recently around indie sleaze, right? This term <laughs> that's like totally made up and retrofitted back. And I actually like the push and pull of the conversation where everyone's like, nobody was calling it indie sleaze at the time. And then someone else is like, I saw a tweet this week that was like, yeah, I don't think the Stooges were sitting around saying like, this is so proto punk of us either. You know, it's like, it's, it's a, like humans, hu- humans organize and classify things by nature. And I think the fluidity, the increasing fluidity of, of genre is really important and special, but we can only comment on that if we have these original building blocks in the first place. Three 
beautiful answers, three different frameworks of answers, all correct, all special. Can I offer a fourth that is far more cynical than all of what we have just been talking about for the last five minutes? This question, the presupposition of this question is that the people on this call are obsessed with it, but nobody else's. And I call BS on that. And I'm not saying that listeners, fans, people on Spotify looking for records are thinking about it because obviously it's not organized that way unless you're like dealing with playlisting and so on and so forth. Artists, the art, the people who are always like, don't put me in a box. Don't do that. You can't put me in a box. Those people live in boxes. They live in boxes. They like the box. That's where they want to be because the box is safe and secure. And it tells them something about themselves. And it tells them something about the people who they are proximate to. There is comfort in that. Now, that psychological satisfaction, maybe no artist is saying that's genre. But like socially, who do you hang out with? Who are you in rooms with? Who are you in studios with? Who do you trust to send you beats that you like? Who do you trust to songwrite with you? All of that is a proxy for genre. They maybe are not using the words, but they are deploying the tools of genre propagation and and structure, even if they're not using the word. And even if in an interview, you would sit down and say, blah, 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 genre, and they would be like, that's nonsense. I'm in no genre. I'm just an artist. But their actions will tell you differently. And so what I would say is ask that to an artist. Don't ask it to us. We're just doing our jobs. <laughs> the, okay. the la- there's one more word that we didn't say in in this genre answer, which is marketing, and it's oh like, yeah, yeah, and like, radio, of yeah, course, like and like formats, all of, like, yeah. and those things are rigid and they are based in racism and sexism and all of that, but they can still be played with in interesting ways, and they can still be organizationally, contextually helpful. Speaking of busting out of genre, sort of. Not really. Uh, this is Unholy. It's Sam Smith and Kim Petros. Big hit from a few months ago. Daddy, daddy, if you want to drop the attic, give me love. Give me Fendi, my Balenciaga. Daddy, you going to need to bag it up. Because I'm spending on Rodeo. You can wish me bag it up. I'll be gone in the AM. And he, he got me Prada. Get me Mew Mew like Rihanna. He always call me because I never cause no drama. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show... It's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories, when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day 
for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. We are not speaking about the arc necessarily of Sam Smith or Kim Petras, although we did get an email that said do a Kim Petras episode. Maybe we will at some point. I have historically preferred the earlier Kim Petras stuff, but like, you know, we'll see how that album comes. We'll see what we'll see what's going on. Garrett Clayman, longtime Bobcast listener. Shout out, Garrett. Garrett has a big picture question, which I actually think is pretty on the nose. Why can no established artist seem to get a second single off the ground? Miley, Lizzo, Harry, Taylor, Sam Smith were all one massive hit and then done. Is that a function of the streaming age? Everyone listens to the album the first week and then is already sick of single two. Once it gets a big radio push and video, there's a Miley bit here. We're going to save it for Karen. (laughs) So I think that's that's an interesting thing. This this seems to be, if I had to guess, a function of two things. One, the nature of album rollout now. It's not as it was decades ago, like here's single one, it's big, here's single two, it's bigger, here's single three, now we're coming to the album, and then once the album is vibing, then single four or five, riding that high. It's just basically like we just absolutely vomited 25 songs at you. Maybe there was one track that we put out a week earlier with like a really high budget video. That to me doesn't encourage a listener to really like dive deep on an album and really attach to other songs. There is just generally too much music. And I think also if like we're talking about the move towards TikTok, like nothing is permanent. Everything changes. History is dead. JP, what do you make of this rollout process? Also, I think the the, the subtext of this question is like, are big stars handling this wrong? Like instead of putting out 15 song albums, knowing that 14 are going to die on the vine, why not put out a four song EP twice a year and then have big hits? off of that and not sort of like leave these other songs to be like abandoned stepchildren. What do you make of this? First, I agree with you that there's just too much out there. New Music Friday is is like an avalanche. So, oh, I heard the Harry Styles song. I'm done with Harry for the year. What's new? It does feel that way. You know, unlike you, I still think an album can be a statement. It can be a coherent group of songs that speak to each other. I don't think that a lot of massive mega hit artists are making them that way anymore. I do think that the the way of the future is to dribble out a single, an EP, just what you have to say, all killer, no filler. It has always been hard for anybody to get traction. A few people get traction in every year, every decade. There are more one-hit wonders than there are multiple deep-cut stars. Part of it is the way it's always been. But our superstars now one hit wonders for each out. Like that's that's the real thing. And I think I think this question is right to basically be like Miley Cyrus, huge star, one hit. If you had told me that no Miley Cyrus album came out, I might plausibly believe you if I had not playlisted one of what, the songs. Here, can I can I make, give a, a sort of a little a little bit of a hot take? What if it's a quality issue? Hey, yo, <laughs> like what hey, if there yo, just are oh, not two two <laughs> smashes on, on these albums because they're not that good because all these people are sort of like in the downslope of their career, you know, like maybe I don't know. We'll see. Like, it'll be interesting to see if karma works because antihero is such a top tier Taylor single and has had such dominance. 
And I think there's a couple other things at play, which is just like there's a lot of stagnancy right now in streaming in general. The charts over the last two years have been fairly stagnant. But I will say all of the country singers who are crossing over, I'm thinking Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, Bailey Zimmerman, hey. their big hits last night, fast, the Fast Car cover and Rock in a Hard Place, none of those are the first single from the album. Maybe they're the first ones that have gotten pushed to country radio, but because country is always a little bit more old school in the in terms of rollouts and slower in terms of build on radio, it's interesting that those are second, third, or fourth singles from those respective albums. I think to the point too, Joe, like Lavender Haze was a single. <laughs> and we always got and it didn't was, really do was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that she means made a Karma, video for it. Karma's yeah. the was third it on, single. I, I feel like I heard Lavender Haze on the radio in LA a bit when I was out there. It's the Kid Ink single of the Taylor Swift album. I think Just- they may have put it to adult contemporary. Speaking of genre again, I think it charted on the adult contemporary singles chart, which somehow still exists. Vibes. I mean, there's a video for it. There's a video for Bejeweled too, but I, I'm pretty sure Lavender Haze was like a single. This is a really interesting question and something I haven't really thought about in these terms. But I think another interesting part of it is that a lot of the smashes that we're talking about, whether it's Flowers or Antihero or as it was, they're just lingering on the chart forever. In some sense, they're blocking the next single, like the the hegemony of the big single from an album sometimes like blocks the next one out of the top 10. I think the the big exception to this rule of last year was Cuff It, the, which was the second Beyonce single and a much more sort of traditional radio hit than Break My Soul was. It, it's a more traditional song in a lot of ways, too. There was something almost surprising about the success of that song because we are so used to this model right now of of kind of the one smash and then maybe the release of the album like pushes it to number one if it's been lingering in the top five and that almost the, the album being this momentum vehicle for the song to rise up the charts a little bit. But yeah, I, th- I think that's another part of it of just like, how could Harry Styles like get another song to the the worldwide level of smash hit that as it was became when, you know, I don't know how many weeks that was in the top 10 or even at number one. If you look at like The weekend with Blinding Lights too, there's something about the way that, yes, we have more choice than ever, but that's almost inducing this kind of paralysis where it's like, whatever the biggest song in the world is, I think that's what we see happening with Flowers recently. And I agree that the rest of that Miley album is is quite forgettable. But how could anything top that? Yeah, I think one in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's like, it's not worth telling your radio and streaming partners, let's move to plan B when plan A is still working. Yeah, don't split the vote. Wow. Also, one other thing that builds on, I think, what both you, Joe and Lindsay, are saying is that I don't think it's also simply that like an album is one great song, quote unquote, and 10 not great songs. I think it's maybe it's one expensive song and a bunch of songs that we're not devoted as much time or energy or resources to. And I find that like at the most cynical level, when I have conversations with people at a label and this dates back for decades, this is not a 2023 problem. 
people would be like, yeah, so-and-so submitted an album or they have a bunch of songs. They're good, but we don't have the single, which is like a classic record label A&R asshole thing to say. It's like, cool. Love these songs. Love your art, bro. Sis, love your art. You don't have a single. I think a lot of these albums are basically a lot of cool songs and then a song that everybody in the office was like, okay, let's engineer this correctly. Let's mix it right. Let's hire the guy who does the specific mixing because he knows the the number of megahertz that plays the best on a car radio, blah, blah, blah. I think there's a lot of energy and resources pointed at one song. And then if something else happens to hit, great. But I think some of this is a resource allocation thing up front. Speaking of songs that are drawing unusual allocations of resources, or at least mindshare, let's listen to a little bit of a little ditty called Heart on My Sleeve by some people that you might be familiar with, sort of. That's Drake in the Weekend. Sort of, not really. It's the AI record. It's by some person named Ghostwriter. It came out a few weeks ago. You definitely heard it. Joe and I had a, a funny conversation about this a few weeks ago about how Joe was like, no person in the world is listening, like out in the world is listening to a song. Like people are only listening to it in the context of being like, damn, like listen to this crazy AI TikTok. And literally the <laughs> oh, next <laughs> This is the then, most depressing thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and then literally the next day I was out in Soho and like a guy on like a motorbike sped by bumping this song. I'm like, how did you, where is this song even coming I from I just on wanted, your like, phone? We need to work through the steps necessary for that to happen, which is like, this was after it had already been taken off yes. streaming services. He had to find a bootleg of the bootleg and somehow like rip it and yeah, then like play MP3. Right, you know, yeah, like, like YouTube, <laughs> he like YouTube to mp3.com'd it, ripped it, uploaded it to a phone, I guess. And then Bluetoothed it and on Bluetoothed his bike. it to a speaker <laughs> to drive by me. All I'm saying is whatever viral marketing guy made that happen to pass me by walking in Soho on that day, good job. You did your work because now here we are talking about it. Here's a question about AI My, from Michael DeCaro. Can we get an in-depth hive mind answer on the implications of generative AI? In less than a month, we've had heart on my sleeve and cause industry havoc. Grimes continues her heel turn and further embrace the tech bros with elf.tech. Joe, that's your thing. And the AI age Muzak company Boom V getting caught trying to game Spotify listens with AI bots. The fact that all this generative AI seems to be built on trawling humanity's collective, creative, intellectual property and art with neither permission nor compensation is unconscionable. I feel like there's a whole bunch of social, existential, creative, and business ramifications heading our way. And just like social media, the tech bros are pulling a heist and claiming innocence on the sidelines while collecting piles of cash, profiting off the intellectual property and art of creatives without permission and compensation. What I have to say to this is if there's a way to make an AI podcast and we all get to take a week off. I wouldn't say no is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Joe, you spoke with Her Majesty Grimes. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to tell us before we get to the big picture question? Like, do you want to tell us a little bit about that conversation and how it went? Yeah, it was good. You know, I've spoken to Grimes over the years. She's latching on to this technology, which is something that she has long been fascinated with and been experimenting with in various ways. And I think when she saw this sort of tipping point moment of part of my sleeve, she was like, okay, now's the time we can launch this tool. But I think Grimes actually said something which I think is 
good for this question in particular, which is that people keep saying to her, oh, I want something that a human made. And she's like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. Like a human made this. Like the, there's a very big difference between generative AI Muzak a la ChatGPT or MidJourney or Stable Diffusion, the sort of image generators where you can type something in and get a result back wholesale versus the sort of voice emulators, which have been the first wave of actually popular novel viral AI music, which are basically a filter. You write the song, you record the song, and then you use a filter to change the timbre of the voice to resemble a famous person. So I just think like, those things are getting conflated a lot. At the moment, I think like the risk is not to Drake or even to Grimes. The risk is to people who make mood playlists on Spotify, the, to, who make hold jingles, who make background music for Real Housewives. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of stuff that I think could be actually replaced by AI. Whereas what Grimes is doing and what Holly Herndon has done before her and what people are doing on the Kanye and Drake forums. And I did get to tell Grimes about my favorite one of these voice emulator switches, which is Michael Jackson doing Pound Town. Have you heard that one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't. Too hot for podcast. <laughs> Truly too hot for podcast. It's just Google. I guess just Google it. I, I almost don't want to. I don't want to hear it. But if you want to yeah, hear it, Google it. It's too hot for podcast. Anyway, there's just like the, there's a lot of different things happening here. There is definitely some whiffs of Web3 NFT crypto scammery Griftery. going on. Griftery. There's also the meme aspect of it, which Holly Herndon and I talked about in the original piece I wrote about AI. And then there's the Grimes thing, which is like she's like, it's an art project. Use my vocal filter the same way you might use autotune or reverb or whatever. See what happens. You can sing like me and then use the voice filter and the song might sound like a Grimes song, or you can sing totally different than me and make it sound like Grimes is singing a post-book song. I don't know. Like we're in the nascent stages of this. It's happening really quickly. I don't love it as music, as philosophy. You know, I don't think the fake Drake songs are good. I think people see it often as an indictment of the artist. I've said this in a couple of different forums now. I think it's an indictment of the listener that people are like, this is just like a Drake song. And I'm like, really? Not a very good listener. Yeah. Well, I mean, respectfully. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot happening here, but and a lot of the threads have been tangled. People who want to go deeper on this have to sort of differentiate which aspects of this AI wave we're talking about. It definitely feels different in the way that the technology is accelerating rapidly, but there's parts of this conversation that just like remind me of things we were talking about 10 and 20 years ago. Like something about the the kind of fake Drake songs, like it reminds me of the fake Radiohead songs that used to be on Napster that some like sound like band would tag and be like, <laughs> yeah. new Radiohead B-side, like whatever. And people would get duped by that. And then, you know, there would be this confusion. But in the Napster case, then things got regulated more tightly when the money started flowing into streaming. And I, I maybe naively think that's what's going to happen here before things get too out of hand. It also, a lot of the grime stuff, and I know she's someone really immersed in this particular culture, but reminds me of like Japanese Vocaloid software and like Hatsune Miku that has been going on in J-pop and, and all sorts of online spaces for at least a decade now. So there's parts of this that feel new and a little scary, but I 
and and that's what's getting the most attention. But I think it's also like this happens every <laughs> cycle of like new technology, technology yeah. even beyond the internet. And then things kind of even out with time. And again, maybe this is naive. Like maybe this is the one that's going to be different. Two questions that were touched upon in the mailbag question that neither of us have mentioned are the question of compensation for artists whose work is being used to train these AI softwares, which the major labels are on it. Let me say that. Like they're not going to miss out on a payday and they're not against this. They're against not being paid for this. You know what I mean? And then the secondary question is artist consent in terms of using their voice, whatever it is. And I think whoever, you know, Grimes is doing it. Holly Herndon has done it. Whoever the first big artist or artist state that says, sure, here's a Michael Jackson pack. Make all the Michael Jackson songs you want. Uh, or here's a bunch of AI music with new top lines written by some Swedish guy. And then we put it in Michael Jackson's voice and now there's a new Michael Jackson. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of possibilities there. But I think consent is a is a big open question. But also to devil's advocate that a little bit too, didn't we think 10 years ago that was going to happen with holograms of dead people? Like the ODB hologram was going to be the new normal. And then it really just became... Kanye like buying a Robert Kardashian hologram creepily for for Kim that one time like there's a lot of things that just don't happen technologically in the way that we think they're going to and again maybe I'm being incredibly naive about this but I'm not terribly worried yet. JP does this sort of a frenzy like is it a historical moment is it in a part of a continuum like when you listen to these songs or you see people making these complaints, what does it bring up for you in the long view? Well, the question was also about generative AI, which is stuff without humans in it. That's going to put a lot of meat and potatoes composers out of work. As these things get more sophisticated and as the tools learn more, it's going to automate the job. The jobs won't be there. And I think that's horrible for musicians, basically. You have to start somewhere if your starting point is telling the machine, you know, give me something in seven, eight time that's in G flat minor. You're shortcutting the 10,000 hours you used to need to become a musician. But this is an old question. This, that's this what came I'm up saying. With, like, yeah, I this wonder, came up with and, drum machines and synthesizers. Yeah, exactly. And probably when the piano was invented, somebody said, oh, you know, it's not a church organ. Yeah. Where's the literature on that? Where's the guy? Where's that person? Like, well, I get that person on podcast. I get the, whoever was around when the piano and the guy was like, nah, 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 nah. It's too technologically advanced. No, no, dead that, dead that. No piano, no <laughs> piano. I don't play piano. No, no, I, that guy. If someone can find me like the literature from like 18, whatever, I'd like to, I'd like to read that literature. We'll get a hologram of him. <laughs> I, okay. I'm just going to, I'm devil's advocating this whole thing, which is just like, it's going to happen anyway. The tools are widely available. They offer layers and and approaches to creativity that were not previously available. Truly creative people will find ways to make meaningful creative work using these new tools. And the people who are going to be left by the wayside, regrettably, are probably not the people who are the most inventive or the people who are innovators. They are people who are accepting the status quo. And to the original question about like the different kinds of AI, like one's human, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's like, I, I don't know if I totally agree with this, but as a thought exercise, some human made the algorithm. 
some human made the program that you are going to say, give me a mournful string section. So that music is to some degree authored by a human. Is it authored by a human scraping the history of recorded music to learn what it means to, to build a mournful string session? Yes, probably. Is that any different or radically different from people just sampling liberally and not knowing people, you know, I think of people saying about rap producers, they don't play instruments. They just sample. Are we going to still have that conversation in 2023 and say that that's not a musical gesture? Of course, it's a musical gesture. So why can this thing not also be considered a musical gesture? Not arguing with you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's a tool to use. What we really have to look forward to, though, is the AI that games the algorithm to make music for other AIs to plug into Spotify and take to the top of the streaming charts with no Can't human wait. intervention at all. The, the AI is just talking to each other. That's a scary thought. And then the AI podcast about the AI music. It's going to be phenomenal. It's just us saying genre, genre all the time. You're right. <laughs> exactly. just talking genre. about genre. Country, rap. I have about three or four questions about the sudden rise in regional Mexican music, corridos tumbados, musica mexicana, et cetera. We, we are in an absolutely, I would say, historically unprecedented moment where music that is coming from these worlds, Peso Pluma, Grupo Frontera, et cetera, is all of a sudden, they're Spotify hits, they're huge hits. They're, they're top five, they're, they're, and now they're increasingly billboard hits. Let's listen to Ella Baila Sola. It's uh, Peso Pluma and Esalban Armado. ¿Qué le parece esa morra? La cana bailando sola Me gusta pa' mí Bella Ella sabe que está buena Que todos andan mirándola Como baila You were just listening to one of the most popular songs of the last six months. And I remember when I started here reviewing concerts in 2008, Anytime like a regional Mexican act came to the area, really going out of my way to try to cover that, like covered like Los Tigres shows in Tocable. There was like a during Gase show I covered of some kind at the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was so infrequent. Maybe we're talking once a year, twice a year. Obviously, those touring formats may maybe not well suited to the Northeast where the Mexican population was not as substantive as it is in the West Coast and the Southwest. But by any metric, it is shocking. One thing that I'm struck by in this current wave, if you think of the year-end piece that I wrote two or three years ago about kind of like everything is Drake now, right? Like reggaeton is basically Drake music. Country is basically Drake music. Like K-pop is basically Drake music. This recent like Mexican explosion is maybe like the first thing that's happened that's not exactly that. And, and I'm not saying that there's not like a combination of singing and rapping because there is kind of a combination of singing and rapping. The formalism of the of the 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 core music at the bottom of it still kind of holds. There's not as much. Maybe it's because it's band music. It's like instrument music. And those structures in those scenes are like so just like accepted and like it's hard to innovate on. I think what you're seeing is like an innovation in subject matter and innovation in like the kind of like toughness of some of the lyrics, although obviously there's like a long history of narco corridos. It's like, it's not like we're not totally flying in a contextless place right now. 
obviously you look at the videos and it used to be like, it'd be like nine guys in matching suits. And now it's people like in Versace and Dior and, and, and Louis Vuitton, you know, the influence is coming in these other forms, but, but they're applying it to like music that often is still fairly traditional structurally. Well, you're also getting more hip hop style vocal phrasing yeah, in the new stuff. I mean, that, that is, seems to me the big change from something you could have heard 10 years ago. That's where the innovation is happening, but I've been struck by how traditional even the most forward-sounding stuff in this space still feels. Like, you listen to a lot of the Rancho Humilde stuff, it doesn't feel like we're that far away from the regional Mexican records of five years ago or eight or 10 years ago. Like, we're not that far. A lot of the questions that came into the mailbag were sort of like, why is this happening? Like, why? Well, who's the biggest artist on streaming? Like, even in the English-speaking world right now, it's Bad Bunny. Yeah, sure. So I don't know, like, how the algorithm, like, works if it's going to serve you up more Spanish-language music if you've listened to some of the Bad Bunny singles. Like, maybe it does. And maybe there is kind of a, a slippage there. Even though they're coming from two totally different traditions. Yeah, I don't really know. But I think it can't be overstated how much he's sort of breaking down that language barrier. So Bad Bunny, very early adopter of a lot of styles. The most recent Bad Bunny single, probably going to be the biggest Jersey Club record, like on a pop chart. So Bad Bunny was very early with this. He did a record with Natanel Cano two or three years ago, maybe more, maybe three or four years ago. Maybe this is a good time to listen to that. JP, LZ, I appreciate you. Karen is going to show up for a glamorous finale question. But I appreciate y'all showing up today. This is Soy El Diablo, the remix. This is Bad Bunny on a Nato song. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking to buy your dream car? Shop the convenient way. 100% online with Carvana. Carvana offers hassle-free financing that's completely transparent. All you have to do is answer a few questions, and you could get pre-qualified in just two minutes. Then, see your real terms and actual monthly payments as you scroll through Carvana's huge inventory of cars. The numbers you see are personalized just for you. It's that easy to find the right car for the right price, as it should be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to finance your dream car the convenient way. Okay, first of all, thank you to Joe and Lindsay and JP for handling the bulk of the questions. But there's one question. There's actually two, but like Karen's on tight time today. So Karen has arrived. Bienvenue. Hi, John. Karen, a lot of people want to hear you talk about Miley. Oh, really? Let me silence my notifications. (laughs) (laughs) Things started dinging when you said that. We don't have to tackle that. We can save that for the next mailbag. Okay. But there is a question that it is not addressed to you. But when I read it, all I could think is the only person who really can answer this question is Karen out of all of us. I'm touched. This is from Julia Arancio. Julia says, I was wondering if you guys face a lot of pressure to DJ when you're at a social event. 
If you're at a party or hanging out with friends, do people expect you to put on a great playlist just because of your work? When you're on aux, what are your go-to songs? Do you have any crowd pleasers slash general advice how to create a killer Spotify queue? I know, because I know you, that you have been tapped by some people in our friend circle to DJ their parties or birthday events, boss mitzvahs, quinceañeras. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I know you're out there. No, maybe nobody wants to hear me, DJ. I don't know. Maybe nobody asked me. Maybe they think I'm always booked. I don't know. It doesn't happen. But I know that you are doing this. And so I think for the end of this mailbag episode, I think you should talk through what it's like to be at a CG DJ set. I, I, feel like I love that your assumption is that you're always booked. <laughs> and that's the reason why people aren't asking. First of all, anybody who knows me knows I am booked and blessed. So real talk. I know. Sorry, just moving the cat. Oh Hi, my Richard. God. Richard's here. Rich- Richard is clinging to me for dear life. (laughs) My God. All right. That was something. I used to be asked more. Okay. That's an advertisement. Just for for clarity's sake, if you're listening, (laughs) that's that's her saying she would like to be asked. It's funny because when when, uh, everybody who worked in journalism and music journalism used to be hanging out together in the early 2000s, there was a lot, there was a lot of opportunity. Shout out High Five Bar. High Five Bar. Shout out. Yes. I mean, the the aux cord was very real in that era. And it would be very easy to get a party started by playing era-appropriate dance music like La Tigra's Decepticon, oh. The Rapture's House of Jealous Lovers. Are you not happy with these songs? No, no. I'm just like you're like you're like touching like a it's like you like like a secret spot. Like it's like I know that place. I've been there. Yes, that stuff is good. So now. When I make my year-end lists, and I was I was mentally thinking about your year-end singles list when I was sort of gently ribbing you, yes. because I like to sequence my year-end songs list sort of like a party playlist. And I know your year-end songs list is always a lot of rap music that like I didn't even know you were listening to all year long. Yeah. And I'm sure some crowds would be thrilled to hear it, but I'm talking about a very general a general audience. Wow, drag me and my it's audience. Not- <laughs> not a drag it's just an observation i've edited these for eight years now and i'm always like what is john's list i I, so several years ago but pre-pandemic i was asked to dj somebody's 50th birthday party with all madonna songs oh right i remember this yeah yeah. and i had loaded up my phone with different eras like a couple of all upbeats because i don't feel like anyone wants to hear anything downbeat when you're djing there's no there's no room for for ballads or mid-tempos it's got to keep you got to keep it high and i downloaded one of those dj apps where you can make sure that they're the same tempo, you know, it's not really beat matching them, but just make sure they're in the same ballpark and kind of blend them into each other. I did this for like three hours of Madonna songs without repeats. And what did it go off? Very successful. Very successful. I was asked to come and do somebody's wedding in Canada off of the strength of that set, but then the pandemic came and I never went, although I, I would do it. And let me ask, like you pre-sequenced that or you were sequencing on the fly? I was going on the fly based on mood, based on vibe. But I had, but I had all the songs loaded in. So I had, you know, I had a cache of songs that I was coming from. But in terms of just like general stuff, it's very, I mean, I, how personal do we want this to be? John? Very but personal. Was- <laughs> very. That's why I have you. That's why I waited for this. Very personal. When I was in middle school, I had my CD wallet thing, yeah, sure. you know, and I would not go to somebody's house for like, oh, we're all, you know, the whole crew is going to hang out at Alana's house. I would not show up without the entire wallet full of things that I planned to listen to which at that point was like 98% REM albums. But you had to bring them all. Yeah. We needed Life's Rich Pageant. We needed Murmur. 
<laughs> we, we, we needed out of time. You needed all of them because you just didn't know what kind of mood you were going to be in. So I have been walking around with large amounts of music for the opportunity to play them for people. Yes, for a long time. So this is a fair question. But what was the question? No, the question <laughs> was essentially, no, just essentially what makes, like, are you asked to DJ because of who you are and because of what you do? And what is a, a CG DJ set? What's the vibe? So I think I'm asked more because of who I am and less because of what I do. Because while people assume I listen to new music all the time and everything, that's not necessarily what they want to hear at correct. a function, right? Because you have to mix. I mean, this is, I'm not a professional DJ. I'm sure people listen to this and cr cringing and typing to their friends cringe. But, you know, obviously it's a mixture of nostalgia and new. Mm -hmm. A mixture of tempos, a mixture of genres, but everything in the same. You know, it's really about vibe reading. It's a real, it's a real read the room moment. And I'd like to think that that's one of my skills can't argue with that i i will say the corollary to this question is often like you know you're out somewhere and people will be like oh you're a music guy you're a music guy like what should i listen to yeah it's the worst question literally terrible literally no like answer. literally terrible never no. do that to me because and, and, and the answer like first of all it's not my job to tell you what you list i mean unless you read what i'm writing or, or what we talk about on the show but like I, your particular taste profile one's particular taste profile is so idiosyncratic I don't wish to be prescriptive in that specific way. Also, like where I am in my listening journey is almost certainly not going to line up with where you are in your listening journey. But yes. However, if anybody would like to hear me DJ a set that consists of contemporary hip hop, some new regional Mexican music, some reggaeton, some dembo, like uh, some just some country, some Bailey Zimmerman okay, maybe I would be open to that. I'm simply saying maybe I would be open to that and maybe there should be a podcast DJ night. That's all I'm simply saying. Just throwing that out there. I was going to say, if we, if we did another live event, we could all take turns doing an hour set at the end and then we can have some sort of voting. Yes. <laughs> of who won, who won the crowd. <laughs> sick. Who is favored? Sick. I've been watching Top Chef. They You're do that. They ask the crowd. Sick. Do they sick. like it? It's very sick. Thank you, John. But I mean, also, it's not unrelated. I think I've said this before, but I have friends who have asked me to help them sequence their albums. Because I am, I believe that this is one of my skills is putting things in an order that makes sense like that. rhythmically, tempo wise, narrative wise, and just like literally just vibe, just vibe wise. I often assign stories based on vibe. I'm sorry, anybody who's pitched me and been very disappointed. Perhaps I just didn't feel the vibe that moment. For the right price, Karen Gans will make your shit tighter. As a famous rapper once said, that's our show. Thank you to CG. Listen to every podcast ever at nytimes.com slash podcast. Email us, podcast at nytimes.com. Do the mailbag questions on a rolling basis because a couple of these questions came from a few weeks back. Just keep sending them. I'm always looking at them. Get your t-shirts and your stickers. It's the podcast.myshopify.com. Get in the Facebook or the Discord, tinyurl.com slash podcast Facebook slash podcast Discord. Listen to podcasts anywhere you get your audio content. That's Spotify, that's Apple. And right now it is YouTube. And if you look on YouTube, there's maybe a little gift there for you. A little something extra, a little jam. Our producer, as ever, is Pedro Rosado from Head Separate Media. We will be back next week. Why don't we go out with a Karen Gans hit? Karen, you want Decepticon original or DFA remix? Well, you know what? It's actually very appropriate because La Tigra is returning this very weekend oh. for their first reunion show in Philadelphia. I did not know that. Saturday night. Yes, I was considering driving down. Shout out JD. Shout out yep. Kathleen, the whole gang. So wait, so which one? Original or DFA? Let's go original. Okay, La Tigra, Deceptic. It's a great remix though. Great remix. Yeah. Go go find that. But original, original recipe, La Tigra, Decepticon. We'll be back next week.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.